We're going to continue our uh, um, series on uh, a book called Surprise by Hope. If you could put the first slide up for me, that would be great. Um, this is a series we started this month based on this book by Tom Wright. Some refer to him as N.T. Wright. Um, he's an incredible theologian, a gift to the church and a gift to this country. This man's an incredible man and the way he thinks um, and uh, applies theology uh, is wonderful. And this book, I read this book um, last year and uh, I was halfway through it and I decided we needed to look at it as a whole church. It's, what he talks about is so groundbreaking in terms of just, just what it is. It's about looking at the f- hope we have for the future as believers. It's about what happens after we die and the hope of heaven and the hope that Christians have. And then it's about applying that to the world we live in today and saying, okay, if we've got that hope for our eternal future, then what hope do we have for now? And as he does that, he challenges um, some kind of some ideas that have been floating around the church and floating around Christianity for a long time. And to be honest, I'm not quite sure where they've come from or why they've got there, because he says that's not that's not in the Bible. And we'll come to that in a minute. So we looked at hope for the world, and we looked at how God is going to come one day. The Bible says, and completely renew His world, completely renew His creation. How He will come, it says in the, in the uh, Psalms, with to to judge with righteousness. And if you remember, I said the word judge has negative connotations for a lot of us, but actually this is not a negative judgment. This is a judgment where God says, I am going to put right the things that have gone wrong in this world. I'm going to bring my kingdom rule and reign to bear on this messed up planet. And the rest of our series basically sort of breaks that idea down and looks at it um, through the big story of the Bible, the big story of what God's huge, enormous plan is. We looked last week, Stephen looked at the hope of resurrection, the biblical story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. How the evidence, Stephen said, is overwhelming that it actually must have happened. There's, there really isn't another credible explanation other than that it happened. If you look at the, for the people who've gone into the evidence, and Stephen talked about that a bit and also cited some other places where you could go and read if you want to look into that deeper. But even more than the evidence being incredible for Jesus' resurrection, the fact that the meaning of his resurrection proved that Jesus was really God, proved that Jesus had the power to forgive sins, proved that he could, has ultimate power over death, that he's defeated God's enemy once and for all. We looked at how the resurrection of Jesus enables us, his believers, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to encounter his power in our lives. Because of Jesus' resurrection, because he came back from the dead, physically, bodily, resurrected from the dead, we can also experience a resurrection, a kind of resurrection now and an ultimate future hope of resurrection. Ephesians says we were dead in our sin, but we have been brought to life in Christ. Sometimes that's literally, spiritually, sometimes it's literally. How many of you know that that is good news? How many people know that you've had a part of your life that has felt dead or almost dead? And that in, under the power of God and with Jesus walking with you, it has been able to come back to life. The Bible says that we are renewed when we come to Jesus and our life in him is a journey of transformation. And yes, we will be raised with him at the end. So the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a central event historically and theologically. It's also a prophetic foretaste, a picture of what we can expect in the future when one day Jesus comes back to rule the world and put things right once and for all. Tom Wright puts it like this. I'm going to quote him three or four times during today's talk. Um, you know, other, other writers are available. Um, 
but he's just really good on this subject. Really, really good. Anyway, he says this. God will, um, starting over here, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of that new life, the fresh grass growing through the concrete of corruption and decay in the old world. That final redemption will be the moment when heaven and earth are joined together at last in a burst of God's creative energy for which Easter is the prototype and the source. Isn't that wonderful? Somebody once said that listening to Tom Wright talk is... uh, We don't have any notes, sorry. You've only got these. Um, Somebody once said that listening to Tom Wright talk is like drinking from a fire hose. But the book's only a tenor. Go and read it. It's good. <laughs> so what is the hope of heaven? And in fact, where is heaven and what is heaven? To get onto today's topic. Um, there's a common view going about. I don't know where it came from that heaven, to be in heaven means to float in the clouds. To sort of play a harp and just kind of generally float around. Now, obviously, scientifically, that isn't possible. If you tried to float in a cloud, you wouldn't. you just fall through it. Okay? Um, and even if it were possible, does that kind of idea sound like fun to you? It, maybe, that, maybe that sounds like heaven to you. I think a lot of people look at that idea and think, actually that sounds really boring. Is that all that heaven is? This is a far side cartoon. So where is heaven? What, what is heaven and what, what does it look like? Where does God live? There was a Russian cosmonaut called Yuri Gagarin who was the first guy who flew into space. And he's widely quoted... It's a misquote, actually. It wasn't him who said it. But he's widely quoted as saying, I flew into space and I did not see God. He went, I mean, nobody had flown from the earth before. So it's a natural question, isn't it? Well, if you get out there, do you see God? Actually, he never said that. He was a believer and he wouldn't have said that. It was uh, Khrushchev, the, the president of Russia at the time, or his boss or something, who said that. Uh, who said that. But it got attributed to Gagarin. Um, most people don't actually think that heaven is in the clouds. But at the very least, it seems that the common idea about heaven is that wherever it is and whatever it is, it's a long way away from here. People imagine that whatever heaven is or looks like, it's very radically different from the earth and somehow separated by some kind of enormous gulf. And so if we pray our Father in heaven, most of us probably logically conclude that God, who is in heaven, must also be a long way away from us. That he must be distant and disconnected. And yet we know that isn't true. The Bible's very clear that that isn't true. The Bible tells us heaven and earth were both created by God. That they are interlocking spheres of his creation. Yes, spaces that are distinct, but also spaces that somehow merge or overlap in some ways. Heaven and earth seem to be able to overlap in the Bible in a way that God seems to be able to be present on earth sometimes. And then it seems that he's able to then be not present on earth, but with the possibility of being present on earth. Do you get me? I mean, that's just the biblical picture, the descriptions of heaven and God and how this thing works. So heaven is God's space. It's a space created by him. It's designed to work together with our space and it does overlap with our space. I'm going to go through this in more detail in a minute. But at the Garden of Eden, we see heaven and earth overlapping. In the temple of Jerusalem, we see heaven and earth overlapping. In Jesus himself, 
we see heaven and earth overlapping and in Jesus' body which is us the church we see heaven and earth overlapping I'll come to that in a bit more detail in a minute as well as that it seems from the Bible that heaven is also some kind of control room for the earth NASA Houston it's the other way round it's not us out there you see when God's people were facing trouble from their enemies they would turn to their pagan kings and say you can come against us if you like but there is a God in heaven who is actually in charge round here he is sovereign over all of this earth including all of you and one day he will call you to account for your actions we look not to you but to a higher power therefore in some sense God must have the ability to be in control over the earth now some might respond to that idea by saying well if heaven is in control of the earth it's not doing a very good job this place is a mess how could God be in control but I think to say that means to misunderstand the nature of who God is I met somebody here actually uh, just before Christmas just got chatting to somebody who'd come along to our toy fair and we chatted quite happily for about 15 minutes 20 minutes and then and then they said so what is this place anyway <laughs> and I said oh this is a church so what's what do you do here well I'm, I'm the vicar and they went oh that's why you're talking to us I don't believe in church I don't believe in God what why is there so much rubbish in the world if God's if God's who he says he is I said well that depends on your view of God and whether you think God's a control freak or a father okay because if you've got God as a control freak then you know he could take responsibility for all the stuff that's in the world but he's not a control freak he's a father the Bible says heaven is at hand and that God is close and that the kingdom of God that we talk about in fact the Bible talks about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and you can pretty much interchange them it means the same thing we believe that God longs to bring heaven to earth again to make his sovereign rule a reality on earth once again but he knows that when he does it will have devastating consequences I mean think about the flood for a minute think about Noah and that story if God were to exert his sovereign rule and reign the control that he actually is able to if he chooses to if he were to exert that on the earth now devastation and I don't think he's that kind of God I think he's a merciful God a father who wants in his grace and mercy everyone to have as much opportunity to come to him as possible therefore he will exert it but he'll do it a bit at a time I mean I haven't got a very very good analogy for this but my best analogy is this is just of, of me as a father I could if I wanted choose to exert my ultimate control over my children I'm not sure what effect it would have <coughs> excuse me I'm not sure what effect it would have in his mercy God as father takes it gently and slowly and reveals himself to us and calls us to him he doesn't want the almighty triumphant blast of glory and power and holiness I don't think so not yet anyway he wants a gradual restoration through Jesus and through Jesus's body today which is us the church now this weekend we've had Stu and Chloe Glassborough and the Catch the Fire team here the Catch the Fire a church up in London and a ministry around the UK and around the world and um, we've been learning how to put what I'm talking about in theory into practice as a reality 
We've been talking about miracles and healing. We've been talking about signs of the kingdom. There were people prayed for this weekend who got healed, who got better. Steve Brown, who is not here because he's upstairs with the youth, and had a pretty really terrible injury to his shoulder, a fractured shoulder, and had a significant measure of healing to that on Friday night at the conference. And there were others. That's how it works practically. That's how it works practically. We'll come to more of that in a minute. The question is, how do heaven and earth interact then? And here's a little bit of a timeline. You see, the Garden of Eden, we read about, was a really special and beautiful place. And we read that God was able to walk in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden. So somehow, this was a space on earth that was set apart or designated to be a place where man could exist and where God could also exist. Now we know that it all went wrong after the Garden of Eden and I don't have time to get into that. But again, as part of God's rescue plan, he's always, he's always been looking for ways in which he, the kingdom of heaven, can interact and overlap with the kingdom of earth here. So another way that this happened for the ancient Jews was through the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. Previously the tabernacle and then the temple. This wasn't just a nice big mother church type thing. This wasn't just a place where the worship life and the community life and the political life happened. This was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. Do you see this big building in the middle, the tall bit in the middle? Anyone know what that's called? What's it called? Do you know? Well, people refer to it as the Holy of Holies. Okay, the Holy of Holies. This part of the temple was thought of as heaven. They used the phrase heaven. This was the space where God's presence dwelt. It was so holy and so special that a priest was only allowed, one special priest was only allowed in there once a year. And you know they used to tie a rope to his foot? Because, that they would, they would, because he, would, he was likely to be so overcome by the presence of God that he would faint. And they thought, well, or maybe even die, I suppose, I don't know. But they thought that um, you know, they'd better have a way of getting him out again without going in themselves. So they tie a rope to his foot so they could pull him out when he'd fainted. If you go to an Eastern Orthodox church, they still have a part of their church building that they call heaven, which is separate from the earth. They have a screen in between. They have saints on, this, on that screen. It's a translucent screen. And they would bring the Bible and the sacraments, the communion stuff, out from heaven, from heaven to earth. Because to signify that this is what God did, he gave, he brought his presence, his stuff, they were given from heaven to earth. So the temple was a place where heaven and earth interacted. And of course then Jesus becomes the, not just the place, but the person in whom heaven and earth overlap. He becomes the means by which heaven touches earth. He embodied that in his life, in his teaching, in his ministry. Here's a verse in Ephesians which talks a little bit about this. It's kind of all over the New Testament. But here's one verse, one, th one passage in Ephesians. It says, in him, that's in Jesus, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God's ultimate plan is the joining of heaven and earth. His plans and purposes for the world started to be worked out. This plan, this ultimate plan started to be worked out through Jesus. The power of God was present when Jesus preached and when he healed the sick 
and when he cast out demons and when he did the stuff. The kingdom of heaven came about all around him on earth. People encountered God's presence and power. Their lives were transformed and restored and healed. Recreation was happening all around. Healings and miracles, they're simply God's re- his creative power recreating. And Jesus empowered his followers to do the same. He embodied all that God wanted to do through his life and then more fundamentally through his death and his resurrection. And you know that at the point that Jesus died, something happened in the temple. The curtain that was dividing heaven and earth was ripped in two. Signifying that there is no longer any gap. There is no longer any, um, any division between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. That was the beginning of the end. In Jesus we see this final plan start to happen. Theologians call it, here's a big word for you, two big words, inaugurated eschatology. The eschatology means the stuff that happens at the end. The inaugurated bit means the bit that Jesus started. He started the end. Okay? You don't have to remember that. That word, but I love it. The main thrust of the Bible's teaching about heaven is not that we are going to leave this world and go to heaven, but that heaven is going to come here. And it's already started. Now, I was absolutely devastated when I read Tom Wright's book to find that the words of a hymn, one of my favorite hymns, are theologically wrong. Okay, the hymn is, um, How Great Thou Art. Okay, it's not the whole hymn, by the way, it's just one verse. Okay. There's a verse at the end where it says, When Christ shall come in shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. The Bible does not say that he is coming to take us home. That's a great idea, but that's not in the Bible. And Wright suggests that a better, word to, a better phrase to sing there would be, When Christ shall come in shouts of acclamation and heal the world, what joy shall fill my heart. Devastated. The kingdom of heaven is not somewhere we're going to escape to to get out of this messy old world. That idea is not biblical. How we, how, it's, it's coming. How do we live in that? What is it? Well, I'll, I'll give you some practical ideas about that in a minute. You see, I think the kingdom of heaven wants to come and demonstrate. I think God wants to do that here and now. Here today. Here today. I think God wants to do things here today that show that this is what he's about. Uh, just before we get to that I'm not an expert here but what does that mean about what happens after we die here's a couple of ideas that Tom Wright puts forward that I think are very plausible I'm not claiming to be an expert on this the first thing he talks about is something called paradise okay paradise if you re- we read in Colossians 3 when we die when you died Paul says and your, your life is now hidden with Christ and then when Christ who is your life appears then you will also appear with him in glory. The main thrust of the New Testament's teaching, Paul's teaching, and not just Paul, is that something is going to happen whereby we are resurrected. Romans 8, which we studied in depth last year, puts it like this. If Christ is in you, then this is verse 10 of Romans 8, if you want to follow, 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. 
the New Testament writers seem to suggest that all who believe in Christ will experience a glorious resurrection. A glorious physical bodily resurrection. What does that look like? I have no idea. Except that I've already seen it's already happened once on the earth. And that was in Jesus. Jesus had a resurrection body which was not unlike his physical body but which had somehow changed. So that sometimes it was recognisable and sometimes it was not. Jesus never said anything that suggested that he didn't broadly go along with the Jewish belief that there is a final resurrection. There's nothing to suggest that that will happen in some distant far off place. There's plenty more evidence to suggest that it will happen here on earth. So what about paradise? Because Jesus talks about, he says, oh, in my father's house, there are many rooms. There are many dwelling places. And people assume that means there's plenty of space for people to go and be with God in heaven. Actually, the word, the context for that word, has, it's grown up to mean, oh, that just means going to heaven permanently. But that word, dwelling place, the word is monai. And it actually, in ancient Greek, is not regularly used as final resting place. It's a temporary halt on a journey to somewhere else. A temporary halt on a journey to somewhere else. Jesus says to the guy on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And again, the word used here and in other Jewish writing implies not some final destination, but a blissful garden, a parkland of rest and tranquility, where the dead are refreshed as they wait for the dawn of the new day. Now I get this stuff is challenging. I'm not expecting all of us to, you know just buy it straight away but I think this is a fantastic idea to pray about and think about so 10 years ago my dad died and when my dad died I sat there and I thought well how am I now going to think of my dad how when I think about him where am I going to picture him in my mind and what is he going to be doing and all of you have had people close to you who've died and maybe you've had this same question and I racked my brains and I prayed and I, I just thought well, I, I just don't know what I think and the best answer I could come up with was this. When I have experienced God's presence and his power in a significant way for myself, I feel an inordinate sense of peace. I just feel like everything is okay and the world is at one. Do, do, can, do you understand what I'm saying? Can you relate to that? Like nothing else matters. I'm just with my father in heaven. I'm just in, not in heaven. I'm here. Well, heaven is here. Whatever. I'm getting confused. Um, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just experiencing that profound and beautiful sense of peace. And the more I thought about it, I thought, well, it must be like that for my dad permanently now. What a wonderful thought. What a wonderful thought. And then I read this in Tom Wright, which um, you can... This, I, mean, I came to that conclusion about 10 years ago. He says this, this state is not clearly the fi- this state of paradise he's talking about, not clearly the final destiny for which the Christian dead are bound, which is, as we've seen, the bodily resurrection. But it's a state in which the dead are held firmly within the conscious love of God and the conscious presence of Jesus Christ while they await that day. There is no reason why this state should not be called heaven, Though we must note once more how interesting it is that the New Testament routinely doesn't call it that. The New Testament uses the word heaven in other ways. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I take comfort from that. Great comfort. And a lot of peace. 
you could look more in detail if you wanted to. You could buy his book. He also talks about the idea of purgatory. He pretty much rejects the whole idea. But he talks about how he arrives at that conclusion. And then the other question is, so what about hell? You see, in the Middle Ages, people envisaged heaven and hell as equal and opposite realities. I went to look online for, for a picture that would show you, but none of them were very edifying and I decided not to bother. Um, <laughs> but, but basically, you know, you have this idea in the Middle Ages of if you're good, you go up and it's all lovely, and if you're bad, you go down and it's all awful. You know, the Bible doesn't describe hell like that at all. There's one parable which Jesus tells where it's kind of described like that, but it's so stylized that you can't look at that and say, oh, well, that's what, that's what the reality is. Heaven and, earth are rea- Heaven and earth are realities created by God. And to live on earth with a kingdom mindset is us getting as close to, as we can to be fully human. What, um, uh, you lay, I'm sorry, I forgot your name, Katya, is it? Described earlier, you know, just knowing the Father's love is, if you really know the Father's love and you really know who you are, then we're getting close to what it is to be human. We're getting close to how, what we've been created to be, made in the image of God, and understanding that for ourselves. The opposite of that reality is, is simply the state of not wanting to know all about that. Not wanting to be part of the new kingdom of heaven and earth reality. If someone persists, permanently resists, the invitation of a loving father to be in a relationship with him, then ultimately they are choosing to put themselves outside of that goodness, outside of that joy, outside of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of of God. Do you get me? If it's possible to live in the reality of heaven here and now, then it also must be possible to live out of the reality of heaven here and now. And if it's possible to do that here and now and that leads to eternity, then it also must be possible to live outside of that reality and that leads to eternity. So what some persons describes as hell, to me, is just simply when a person decides they want to stay in their own world. They want to stay in their own life. They want to worship their own God. They don't want to be part of God's kingdom of heaven and earth plan. In a sense, turning their back on God and all that he's made them and created them to be. Now, because God is a father and not a control freak, the tragedy is that he allows that to happen. You with me? It's a tragedy, but it is possible that people might embrace the mindset, I can live on the earth without God and I can live for eternity without God. So heaven and hell are not places in our cosmos, they are states of existence. And Tom Wright further makes this point. He says, we actually become like the thing or the person that we worship. The more you spend time with a person, the more you edify and glorify them, the more you will become like them. For those of you at the conference this weekend, I had a little, f- I, had a, I just noticed something at the end of, well, I noticed it all weekend actually. And I said to Stu and Chloe, there's something about your team and their shoes. I said, all the girls wear really funky Healy shoes and none of the boys wear trainers is it a dress code you have or something and they went it's not really a dress code but I and they just said oh it's just something that happened and people want to do it but isn't it funny how you want to be like somebody who you really respect you know when we experience a walk in the life of heaven as it is joined to our earth then we 
become more truly human and more like Jesus. We become more like the person we worship. When we reject the life of heaven and we worship not Jesus but ourselves or our stuff, then we end up becoming like what we worship, which ultimately means we become less and less fully human. And as Romans 1 actually describes, we end up in a tragic spiral downwards. That's what I would call hell, you know? There has to be some kind of judgment ultimately. A good father will and can be incredibly merciful, but ultimately will have to uphold the truth at some point. But I wouldn't trust anybody who claims to know what that looks like or who gets in and who gets out. That's not, that's not, that's not ours to judge. So let me read you one more bit of Tom Wright where he describes what this might look like. You can take this or, or leave this, but... It's an important question. It's possible, he says, I don't have this up here. It's possible for human beings to so continue down this road, so to refuse all whisperings of good news, all glimmers of true light, all promptings to turn and go the other way, all signposts to the love of God, that after death they become at last, by their own effective choice, beings that were once human, but now are not. Creatures that have ceased to bear the divine image at all. With the death of that body in which they inhabited God's good world, in which the flickering flame of goodness had not been completely snuffed out, they passed simultaneously not only beyond hope but beyond pity. There is no concentration camp in the beautiful countryside, no torture chamber in the palace of delight. Those creatures still exist in an ex-human state, no longer reflecting their maker in any meaningful sense and can no longer excite in themselves or others the natural sympathy some feel for even the hardened criminal. That's pretty brutal. And it's, but it's, I think it's a pretty good description. And you can look at the book for yourself if you want to take it further and, and realize how he's come to that conclusion and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. But I think it's helpful. But it is also sobering, isn't it? Because God has given us the choice. It is, we do get free will on whether or not we want to choose. And tragically, some people will use that for their own path. You know, when I was a kid, we used to go out on the streets and do these questionnaires in my church. And we used to ask people, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd go? And then we would try and convince them that what they really needed to do was avoid going to hell as their eternal destiny. And they might as well become a believer in Jesus. For some people, the whole focus of their Christian life is about avoiding hell. It seems to me that that kind of evangelism is just appealing to a person's self-preservation instincts. If, that's, if the whole of our Christian life and evangelism and witness and mission is summed up in the question, what happens to me after I die, then we've really missed something fundamental. We are asking the wrong question. And Tom Wright uses a fantastic phrase, which I've never heard before. I told you about inaugurated eschatology. He uses this word, collaborative eschatology. Let me read you what he says. My understanding of this, in line with what I, uh, in line, sorry, my understanding of this is because the early Christians believed that resurrection had begun with Jesus and would be completed in the great final resurrection on the last day. They believed that God had called them to work with him in the power of the Spirit to implement the achievement of Jesus and thereby anticipate the final resurrection in personal and political life, in mission and holiness. You with me so far? It was not merely that God had inaugurated the end, if Jesus the Messiah was the end in person, God's future arrived in the present, that's Jesus. Then those who belonged to Jesus and followed him were empowered by his Spirit 
were charged with transforming the present as far as they were able in the light of the future. In other words, we get to be part of this. Collaborative eschatology. The end has begun. Jesus is on his way back and we get to work with him to see that happen. Do you get me? Now don't be put off by the long words. Don't be put off the long words. That's fantastic. What does it look like? How do we do it? Very quickly. Jesus prayed. He says, when you pray, do this. Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Now I looked this up this morning and I had accidentally got the numbers fixed around the wrong way in my Bible. Because I mean, and, and, and I've talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is it. This is what Jesus instructed us to pray. This is Jesus teaching. The kingdom is coming here. I looked it up and I accidentally read Matthew 10.6 instead of Matthew 6.10. Matthew 10.6 says this, Go to the lost sheep of Israel and as you go proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out the demons. Freely you've received, now freely give. It seems to me that we need to both pray for the kingdom of heaven to come now and then we need to go and answer the prayer ourselves. And that's what those of us who've been here this weekend have been learning. We live in a time between the kingdom being present and the kingdom not yet being fully present. As followers of Jesus, we don't just experience the power of God and the presence of God and keep it for ourselves, beautiful and lovely and wonderful as it is. We are called to give it away. Come on, you guys. Yes, preach it. Okay? We are called to spread it around, to invest in others, to do what Pete's doing in his workplace and what everybody else will be doing in their workplace at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning or whenever you go to work. Or, if you don't work, whatever you're doing. We are called to be part of spreading the kingdom of heaven in our schools, colleges, playgrounds, communities, families, churches, workplaces. That's what it means to be a scattered servant. That's what it means to be a trusted ruler. That's what it means, as we say on the front of our website, to be sharing the hope and the life of Jesus in every place we go. That's what we are called to do. Now, this weekend, we've learned all about that stuff. And I just... We're going to have time to minister in just a second, but I just want to say something to you. I, as the pastor of this church, I need to apologize to you. Because I've taught this stuff in theory, and I fully believe it. And I have tried really hard to put it into practice as well. But over time, I don't think that I have intentionally pushed myself in this area as I might have done. I've not taken the opportunities that I could always have done to bring the kingdom I've spoken to people who are poorly and I have bottled out of praying for them or offering to pray for them okay now I'm not beating myself up about this I'm on a learning curve God's been speaking to me about it there were opportunities to see the kingdom of God expressed that I didn't take and if I didn't take it then how can I stand up here and expect you guys to do that for me this weekend's been the culmination of several months of God speaking to me gently but firmly saying basically get your act together son you know, So I'm committed to working and praying that through and learning what I can about that. Um, this is about knowing the authority of being a child of God and all that he has given me and you and all of us the power to do. Shall we stand together? Pleasure. Stu, Stu Glasper said this, The word God implies supernatural. You can't believe in God and not believe in the supernatural. It's probably not a problem to believe in the supernatural God. I don't find a problem with that. But there's a, you know, there are hurdles to get over. Does God really want to do stuff? Does he really want to intervene? 
Has he got the, has he got the guts, I was going to say? Has he got the resources? There is no grading of illness in God's economy, whether it's a headache or blindness. If he wants to heal it, he can. Jesus went to the cross to release the kingdom. The Bible says all things are under his feet and under my feet. The fullness of Jesus dwells in me and there is nothing that is too big for God. So why don't we just take a minute to reflect and then why don't we ask him what he wants to do? Let's start practicing heaven on earth. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your kingdom of heaven reality. Lord, so many of us know.